Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com and on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a tech platform that is solving the talent crisis in the life sciences industry by democratizing access to the world's best expertise. I'm very excited to welcome David Burry, the founder and CEO of Valo Health and a general partner at Flagship Pioneering. Thanks so much for joining us today, David. Well, thank you, Rahul. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So David, to kick off, walk us through the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So like probably any career, it was a career well-planned and executed in a completely different way. So I entered into medical school pursuing an MD-PhD out of Harvard and MIT. And even that was a plan that went different to the way that I had expected in that I entered first into the Harvard MD program and then added a PhD at MIT through the biological engineering department. And I worked with Bob Langer and Ram Sassasekaran during that. Now, probably not surprising given the people that I was working with, I got bit by the entrepreneuring bug very quickly and ended up going through my MD-PhD and starting a series of companies while I was doing that. So it became not just something that I was bit by, but I guess you could argue was even addicted to. So when it came to graduation time, I had great opportunity in front of me. The normal path that people would take during that period of time would be to go down the traditional residency path and consider, say, a postdoc and then try to do the dual physician scientist. But I was probably not how do you put it, cut out for that? And I say that just because of my interest in taking innovation and pushing it into the market. Because ultimately, why do we innovate? We innovate to do something, to impact something, to induce change. And I saw the most powerful way of doing that was through the act of entrepreneuring. And so ultimately, despite the fact that I sought the advice of specifically 33 people, and 32 of 33 people told me that I should go do a residency, I ended up not. And ended up joining then Flagship Ventures, of course, which is now Flagship Pioneering. I joined in 2005 and did something that was, if I can put it, very compelling to the way I thought that science and research and innovation should be done, which is focused on how to create solutions to big problems using innovation and entrepreneuring. So when I joined in 2005, I launched an energy company. It's exactly what you expect an MD-PhD to do. And this was a company based out of California, a company called LS9 that was engineering E. coli to convert sugar into drop-in replacement petrochemicals. Company grew up really quickly, grew up really well, became one of the hottest companies in the Valley at the time, which was very exciting. Now, what that meant was as I was having conversations within Flagship, we started looking at how we can start more companies and doing progressively more, both in energy as well as outside of energy. And so I ended up getting into a path of starting a whole series of companies. Started well north of 20 over the course of 2005 to call it about 2018 for the sake of discussion. And these were everything from energy companies to agriculture companies to therapeutics companies. Most of what I did was in therapeutics. But what we started to realize as we were doing this and doing this on a repeatable basis was that there's patterns of how you can create companies that create, if you will, higher confidence in these companies. And that's created, if you will, some of the model that has been behind how flagship starts companies on a reproducible basis. 
Flagship, of course, has a four-step model that starts from explorations, moves into proto-companies, moves into new codes, and ultimately into growth codes with very specific goals and intents in each of those phases. But ultimately, the framing of that emerges from a deep experience of having our team starting a whole series of companies, seeing the things that engender success in companies, and using that as ways where we can encourage the right sorts of behaviors and team members, the right culture creation, the right decisions to be made, the right risk tolerance at the right phase of companies. And so that became a great experience that I had over the period from 25 to call it about 2018, but saw in front of me in 2018, what I thought was a potentially transformational opportunity. And it was one where I ended up approaching Nubar and saying, look, I think there's a field that's emerging in the context of data where people aren't paying attention to it. And they're not paying attention to it because there's so much stuff happening adjacent, if you will, to it, this whole field of AI for drug discovery and development. And with that, I saw an opportunity to create, I thought, a company that could transform how drug discovery and development's been done. And I've been focused on the creation, the build of a company called Valo Health since then. But during this career, I've been blessed with great fortune of being able to work with some of the most talented people across various industries, build a whole series of companies. We've had some great successes. We've also learned the lesson of what it means to be ahead of your time. We've also learned what it means when a hypothesis isn't going exactly right. And this is the beauty of entrepreneuring, which is to embrace the new information that you get and figure out how you can build something even better based on those experiments. But I've found that journey to be a tremendous journey and one that um, despite the fact that I didn't plan for it when I entered medical school, it's taken me on a path that's much more inspiring to myself, much more illuminating and much more exciting than I think I was setting out for back in 2000. Great. And David, looking back at the, let's say, quote unquote, non-traditional path that you pursued for an MD, PhD, and for those listeners that perhaps are in a similar boat and are either, let's say, biotech curious or thinking about starting up their own thing, you know, is there any advice that you would provide when folks are at that inflection point as to what they should consider when they're trying to make that decision? Sure. So first, I get asked a lot, given how my career has gone, whether or not I would have done the MD-PhD knowing what I know now. And the answer is a resounding yes, because the MD gives you just such a deep knowledge around biology, around how human health works, that I just don't think you can appreciate by reading textbooks. There's no replacement for actually being in a room with a patient, seeing how they go through a disease and getting that firsthand transmittal of what it's actually like. And even though it's not something that's as passive in the way that I just described it, when you're in the hospital setting, working to treat patients, you get that exposure, you get that experience, and it helps you appreciate disease in a completely different way, right? Because disease doesn't affect one person. It affects a family. It affects an ecosystem. And those effects may be social. They may be medical. They may be a whole range of different things that until you actually get into it, you don't really appreciate. But I think there's a power of the PhD as well, which is it teaches you how to do good science. And really, there's just no replacement for good science. If you don't ask the right questions, if you don't follow things like scientific method, you're going to make mistakes. They're going to be costly. And yes, they might cost money, but more importantly, they cost time. And that's a resource that just is not renewable. So I think it gives you the right sort of foundation. But I think for people who are knowingly going into the entrepreneurial world, I think having the right mindset when you go in is very useful. Making sure you get the right advisors, making sure you spend time with the right colleagues, make the right connections. And you can make sure that the education that you get is better fit for purpose. 
Great, very salient advice there, David. Before we get into the work that you were pursuing at Valo Health, set the stage for us in terms of what's changed over the last decade at the intersection of software and biotech that gave you the opportunity to pursue Valo Health. So I can tell you a couple different things that have evolved. And these are, on one hand, slow evolutions, on another hand, incredibly fast evolutions. So when we look at the world outside of health, we talk about Moore's Law. And of course, much of the conversation over the last 10 years is how Moore's Law is no longer applicable, even though the numbers continue to follow Moore's Law as has gone back to 1900. And the implication, of course, of Moore's Law is this exponential increase in computing power that's continuing on a very, very consistent trajectory. Now, while the leaders, of course, of computation have changed over the years, the consistency of growth on an exponential basis, that has not changed. What we've seen out of that is this emergence, which gets shorthanded as data is the new oil, which is that data is such a powerful substrate when you have computing power that you can generate a whole wealth of new insights. This is something, of course, that Groups from Google and Facebook or now Meta have been pursuing in a way that the world is very aware of. But other groups like Tesla have also been pursuing it, I think, with great acumen and very strong intent. And when you're capturing the right sort of data, doing the right sort of computation, that gives a framework where you can take a historically based industry and allow it to accelerate at a rate that is unprecedented and frankly impossible in that way that that industry has been developed historically. Now, this kind of transformation we've seen in all sorts of industries. We've seen it, of course, what we see what Tesla is doing in the context of electric vehicles. We've seen what Google has done. We've seen what Amazon has done. We've seen what Apple has done. We don't even need to talk about that. Healthcare has been recalcitrant. And the reason for that is that the availability of data in healthcare really hasn't been at the same level of scale. And part of the reason for that is as we talk about data, Typically, data is a shorthand for EMR data, which is a shorthand for billing records. And the reality is billing records are intended to help bill. They're not intended to help understand health. So the question becomes, can you actually get the right data to be able to do the same sort of thing in the arena of healthcare? Now, about 20 odd years ago, of course, a landmark feat occurred, which was the sequencing of the human genome. Sequencing costs and other such information generation has gone on its own Moore's Law, actually has gone faster than a traditional Moore's Law in the context of healthcare. So the availability of health data has now had 20 some odd years with massively accelerating growth, reductions in cost, especially when you're looking at some of this high quality data. And in those areas, I believe we're now actually at a tipping point where that data has gotten to a point where you can actually draw out real and meaningful, even causal insights, not just sort of the weak associations that have been poo-pooed from, say, the early aughts. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that's been exciting to observe over the last several years has been, particularly at the nexus of software and biotech, has been how many folks from the software world aren't interested in, you know, working on the next delivery app or Uber, if you will, but rather applying their significant skill set to biotech. I'm really excited by what's ahead over the next several decades and, and our ability to pull talent from the Silicon Valley companies of the world to flagship portfolio companies. No, look, I think it's a great point because I know these software engineers are motivated by huge and important problems. And what's been great, of course, from when we look historically, some of the solutions that had to be generated in order to do things at the massive scale that they now are, are fascinating and very interesting problems. But I think we all agree that solving Alzheimer's 
is a lot more of an impactful problem than say doing better ad placement. And it's in that spirit that I think watching this transition, watching people who've tended to spend time out of healthcare, moving into healthcare, I think it's testament to a couple of things. First, it's speaking to the nature of the importance of the problem. It's also speaking to the fact that many think that this problem is now actually tractable. And it's not just something like an Alzheimer's, but it can be neurodegenerative disease at large. It can be cancer. It can be cardiovascular disease because we're getting to these points where we can actually start framing them in tractable problems, where we can start thinking about the solutions. And those solutions can benefit perhaps the person who's working on it, perhaps their family, perhaps someone they've known, but also society at large. And I think that's very exciting. Yeah, agree. And you know, over the last two years or so, it's become clear to everyone in terms of the value prop of the biotech sector as a whole. And I think hopefully we'll, we'll function as an accelerant to pull more talent into our field. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Let's talk about Valo Health and the founding story, how it all came together and your approach to solving some diseases that are in unmet need. Sure. So I think the emergence of Valo Health came out of a couple of different things that were occurring at the same time. One, I think just from the way I was starting to think about problems, I was willing to start thinking about really big problems. And I, I owe credit to a very specific candidate that I was talking to for a CEO role at a flagship company who asked me a question. And he said, what's the most significant thing that you've done? And I gave him the answer that I believe to be true, which is convincing my wife to marry me. And then he asked me, he said, okay, okay, fine. What's the second most impactful thing? And I said, having my kids. And yes, I put it in that order because one is a prerequisite for the other. And he said, okay, fine. What is the most impactful work-related thing that you've done? And I thought about it. And you know, I've been fortunate that along the way, partly because some of the roles I've had in agriculture and in energy, I got involved in the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network. And through that, helped to create what ultimately became the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. And as I was thinking about it when he asked me that question, because no one had really gone three levels deep into that question before, that was my answer, was actually helping to author that. Because that's helped to create a roadmap as we start thinking about a sustainable future that's highly impactful. But I also thought about it because as much as I'm proud to have been probably just a small part of that effort, that wasn't the impact that I've set out for as an entrepreneur, because I've wanted to create innovations that have that scale of impact. And it put my mind, and this is probably in about 2016 or 2017, in a state where I was starting to ask the question of what are really big problems to solve? And I think you need to be in the right mindset in order to actually focus on really big problems. It's really easy to focus on problems, but focusing on big problems just, it requires you to be willing to take in the scale of the problem, willing to focus on the solution of it and willing to break them down and reassemble them. I give that process a lot of credit for getting me into the right mindset. But also there was this trend line that I was seeing at the same time, which was frankly, the scale of computational power that was emerging a la following Moore's law, but also the availability of data. Now, the availability of data was coming from multiple sources. It wasn't just genomes. It was also proteins. It was in the form of proteomes. It was metabolites in the form of metabolomes. It was large-scale information that was being captured at very high quality. But also, what we were seeing was certain repositories of very high-quality human information that were then becoming available. And it occurred in the context of, if you will, creation process, that if we couple this ultra high quality, high density data with computation, we would have an opportunity to actually build a new model for how drugs are discovered and developed. Now, let me dissect that a little bit. 
the way drugs are discovered and developed today is through this 10 to 15 step model. It's something that's evolved into the current model with best of intents by the people who've done it, because we needed to come up with, if you will, the best way we could to solve problems of the day. And that's led us to a set of things that when we're objective about it are highly artificial. We know don't translate. They don't lead to clinical success. And it's ultimately that in the architecture of this, you know, in these 10 to 15 steps, we have localized data, localized data architecture, localized compute. We have localized KPIs, which means that information isn't shared. It isn't used globally. These programs are developed locally. They're locally optimized. And we know that that's not a track record for success, or that's not a framework for success. And we know that because it's what, one in 10 drugs that gets into the clinic gets approved. It's one in 4,000 compounds that ultimately start, that ultimately get approved. These aren't great numbers. And it just speaks to the fact that this is not a systems optimized problem. Now, if we take a step back and we say, how do we think about doing this on a systems optimized way? It should be human centric because we're developing drugs for people. It should be vertically integrated. That is everything from disease identification, target discovery, biology description, if you will, all the way through your clinical trials and ultimately what the label that you're trying to get, all of that should be in one seamless interconnected framework. So the data is completely shared, your experiments are completely aligned, and that what you're doing even very early preclinical is something that can inform what you're doing late in the clinic. And if you take that kind of intentionality, create a unified architecture that allows you to manage that data, you can enable a completely different model of drug discovery and development. Now, this requires digital nativity. That is, it requires a foundation in a computational world. And we saw that as a fundamental opportunity. Now, a couple of things on this. One, it was in that opportunity that we saw what ultimately became the basis of Valo Health, building a digitally native, human-centric, vertically integrated drug discovery and development capability. But what's more interesting about this is when you look at the success of how tech companies have worked in the context of tremendous computational power and data, they're all driven by a data-centric flywheel. Anything from an Apple to an Amazon to a Google to a Facebook, et cetera, the more data they have, the more computational power, the more insights they can generate, the more they can actually then get more data. And that has created a phenomenon where in these cases, these companies have created a critical mass that allows them to do things that others can't. What we see is that there's an opportunity in the context of human data where you can accelerate your learning. You can accelerate your knowledge around biology. I think one of the biggest misgivings we have in the context of human biology is we're just barely off the starting line on understanding. And so ultimately, the faster you can capture data, the faster you can learn, the more you can learn. So when we set out to build Valo, with this notion that we want to be able to learn quickly, we want to learn at scale, we want to accelerate how we discover and develop drugs, we want to do it in a human-centric fashion, and we want to, in the context of that, increase the probability of success, reduce the cost, and reduce the time. So that's ultimately what we set out to do when we started, launched the company in 2019. Of course, it starts with data. We have what I like to think of as large-scale data, where we have about 125 million patient years of data that's some of the richest, most dense, high-quality data in the world from a longitudinal standpoint, in that it's 8 million-odd patients where we have continuous data for about 15 years on average with a near-zero missingness rate. And we've coupled that with incredibly high-density 
omic data, multi-omic data. And it's in that context that we can start understanding disease in very interesting ways because we can understand who to drug, how to drug. We can characterize disease better. We can understand progression better. This allows us to get a whole new framework of understanding. But not only have we developed a basis to uncover the basis of disease, we also have our own toolkit that allows us to develop drugs better. Now, it's not just about making a molecule. It's also predicting whether that molecule will work in the clinic, i.e., how do we understand before we started clinical trials that it's going to be safe and effective? And we've been focused on building tools for that. We've also been building tools for clinical trials, because if we can focus in on the right patients at the right time, in the right way, and look for the right sign of success, we can do things faster, we can do things at lower cost, and most importantly, with a higher probability of success. Now, I will flag, we've seen the benefits of this in rare cases. One, of course, that's been very recent, which is the context of what's happened vis-a-vis COVID, i.e. when you have a causal target, and in this case, a willing society, we can get drugs to work incredibly quickly, get drugs on the market incredibly quickly. And obviously, I think we've all been thankful for the work that Moderna and others have done in bringing vaccines to the market. But the same sort of framework was seen in the context of HIV. And what's powerful about viruses is we know the signal of success. If you see a viral titer drop very quickly in a patient, you know that you're doing something right. We need to figure out the right sorts of signals in the context of other diseases. And that starts opening up these sorts of opportunities on a much larger scale. We've been pursuing, if you will, all of that. We're doing it in a vertically integrated fashion. And we're trying to deliver a framework of therapeutics across cardiovascular, oncology, and neurodegeneration, where we think that there can be foundational opportunities to develop that next generation of therapeutics, a generation of therapeutics that can have deep and durable impact on patients' lives. Wonderful. David, lots to unpack there. Going to the early part of that discussion, as it relates to getting into that right mindset to understand and tackle big problems, I'm curious, is there a process that you have developed for yourself that helps you get into that right mindset over and over and over again from company to company? You know, I think it's a great question because when you get into the spirit of starting companies, it's very easy to get yourself trapped into the day-to-day right? Which is the next thing I need to do is hire a so-and-so. I need to do this. I need to go make sure my quarterly budget is closed properly. And what the task orientation does is it gets you focused on, well, the day-to-day and out of the thinking big. And so from my standpoint, one of the things I always try to do, and I guess there's a trite way to talk about it and a less trite way to talk about it. The trite way to do it is to, if you allow me to say this, challenge everything, right? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this in this way? And if you force yourself to constantly ask questions and constantly have not just you, but also your team on the hook for, are we really asking the right question at the right time? It causes everyone to create an ethos of what can we do better? And I think that helps to, if you will, elevate the discussion. But the other piece of this is how do you keep a focus on why you're doing this? right? And I think there's different reasons that we all show up to work. Sometimes, of course, people show up for a paycheck. There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes people are there because, say, their relative was afflicted with a disease and they want to do it in the memory of them, in the spirit of them. But if we're really there to cure disease, if we're really there to transform disease, we have to actually forcibly remind ourselves of that. Because again, it's very easy to get distracted. And I think one of the best ways to do that is actually to talk about what's actually transformable. 
and what's actually curable and force yourself to think about it. Because there are certain things where we're just not at the edge of being able to have that transformation as of yet. I think we should admit it. But there are certain things just by the same extension where we can have that transformative impact. And having that focus and making it have that tangibility allows you to constantly think bigger because when you think big and it becomes real, then you start realizing, wait a second, what's going to stop me? Yeah, great points, David. You know, I was also asking more so selfishly as well, because, you know, effectively, how do you separate the forest from the trees when you're trying to work on big problems, but you have to think about the next fundraise and the board meeting coming up, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a great perspective. You also mentioned that there's a drug discovery component of your platform, as well as applying that to clinical trials. Is the thinking that the platform itself, particularly from a clinical trials perspective, would stay within Valo Health? Or is there any thinking about potentially licensing that out to other companies, perhaps in the flagship ecosystem or, or perhaps more broadly? Sure. So let me touch on it from a couple of perspectives, because yeah. I view what we're doing at Valo in having almost two frameworks built into it. One is in the first instance, we're building a digitally native, vertically integrated pharmaceutical company. That is, we're taking the capabilities of our platform, we call it Opal, which spans all the way from the beginning of target discovery, all the way through approval as a single unified human-centric platform. And in that context, we think that there's an opportunity to develop highly impactful drugs. And we're focused on that. We've built a pipeline that's been moving forward very quickly. We have two phase two ready compounds as we speak and a pipeline that's behind that focused across CV oncology and neurodegen. And of course, excited about what we think might be the positive impact on patients. But ultimately, what we'd like to become is the underlying technology provider for the industry. Because the reason that I'm so passionate about what we do at Valo is that we want to change this industry. We want to change it durably, which is we want to see ways where people's interaction with disease can be fundamentally changed, not just theirs, but their families. We want to see disease become something that just has a completely different future than it does right now. And in that context, we know, of course, even if we're very successful, drug discovery and development is still a long process. It's still an expensive process. We can't transform the industry through just developing drugs on our own. The way to transformation is to create the tools and the capabilities that democratize, if you will, that framework, that allow others to use their ideas in various ways and see how we can transform diseases. I mean, if we think about it, there's about 13,000 diseases that have been described to date. There's probably well more than that. I think since the time of plus or minus the Model T, there's been plus or minus 1,500 drugs that are approved, and many of them are for the same indications. So if we want to go and lead to this kind of societal transformation, we have to think about the tool opportunity. So from our standpoint, we're very excited about how we can enable others beyond just developing a pipeline that we're working on, of course, as we speak, and hopeful that obviously that can lead to a whole wealth of new drugs that can be transformative for patients. Yeah, interesting. That's great to hear. It, you know, it does feel like there is the potential for a winner take most type of opportunity given the potential power of the platform that you all are working on. So let's take a step back here. Where do you think the puck is headed with this type of model and perhaps more broadly, what opportunities you see? And also let's talk about the challenges in terms of accelerating drug development, but by much more efficiently leveraging software. I think when we look at it, right, there's a couple of trend lines that are coming together. First, of course, this whole field of AI has taken off something fierce. And I think it's rare that we have conversations that don't involve AI these days, it seems. 
But I think when you get to the core of it, right, AI is a statistical methodology. It's a really good one. It's really powerful. It has the potential to transform the insights we can glean from, if you will, different analyses from what we were able to do in the past. And that's very exciting. That being said, when we look at the history of pharma, pharma has been using statistical analysis for decades. And pharmas are pre-systematically putting these sorts of groups, AI groups, into their discovery and development capabilities. So AI, in a way, is the natural evolution of what's occurring. The challenge on it is really a data problem. And the data transformation, I think, is where the puck is going, that in the sort of spirit of Wayne Gretzky, if you'll allow me to go in that direction, it's not just looking at where the puck is going, but understanding what's going to happen when it bounces off that corner and has that funny bounce. You got to know where that's going to be. And I think that's really where data drives us, because data allows us to ask very different questions. So if we think about how targets are discovered today, one of the gold standards of how targets are discovered today is you take tumor cells or tumor out of a human, you put it on a plastic dish, you smear it flat, then you take bacterial enzymes, you throw it on them, and you see which cells live and which cells die. And when you say it like that, it kind of sounds ridiculous because at its core, well, the science around that makes sense, that's a best available technology. It's not the right way ultimately over time for us to be discovering durable targets, for us to discover high confidence targets, for us to discover human relevant targets. And this is where data allows us to enable these transformations. I think what we're seeing first is a massive scaling in data that's taking off as we speak. I think we can see that right in front of us, but then it becomes around data integration, data utilization, data analysis. When you can start uncovering the insights from that data in a meaningful and a scalable way, that's where I think you can start understanding disease in a better way. That's where you can start understanding what are the drugs we need to develop. That's where you can start predicting what's going to happen to a drug when you put it into a patient. And it's in that context that we can start really thinking about a different frontier. So I think data becomes that kind of really where the puck is going, if you will. And what are some challenges that you see along the way, let's say over the next decade or so, as more and more folks are doubling down on AI? Well, the biggest challenge, data is not data is not data. There's high quality data, and then there's everything else. And one, there's been a lot of focus around things like claims data. And claims data, again, was designed for billing. There's a lot of work on cell data, a lot of work on mouse data. At the end of the day, yes, well, where we sit today, those have a role in drug discovery and development. Ultimately, we're not developing drugs for mice and we're not developing drugs for cell culture. We need to make sure that the systems that we have have clear human relevance and clear human translatability. So this focus on data quality, data upgrading is a really important one. And by being able to get the right quality data, generating the right quality data, analyzing the right quality data, that's super important. But right now, I don't think the field has sufficient clarity, and in many cases, availability of the right high quality data, and is doing what often happens in these cases, which is using surrogates instead. Yeah, totally agree with data cleanliness being one of the significant rate limiters that we're going to face. Well, David, we've covered a lot. To wrap up, Given the breadth and depth of your experience to date, what's one piece of advice you'd provide your younger self? <laughs> I always find when you try to provide advice to your younger self, it's really dangerous because you know you flick one thing different in your history and who knows where you actually end up. But I'll take the question on because I think when I look back, one of the things that I've had good fortune on doing was having conviction around when I wanted to deviate from the normal path. And I think that's a really important 
thing to be able to do. And it's an important thing to be able to remain true to yourself. I think when I've tripped myself up is when I lose track of my passions, if you will, which is that sometimes you make choices because they're expedient. You make choices because you're looking to get to, say, a short-term result. And the reason I talk about passions is it's about that question of why are we doing this? When you sacrifice the long-term for the short-term, I think that's always a mistake. And I think that's the one thing that I would give myself advice on is make sure you keep your passions in mind. Think about the long-term. Wonderful. Well, David, it was a pleasure having you on. Thanks for entertaining all the questions we had and for sharing the important work that you're pursuing at Valo Health. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.